You're listening to a podcast from Washington Post Live, bringing the Post's newsroom to life on stage. Former President Barack Obama joins the Post to discuss his new memoir, A Promised Land, the impact of his historic presidency, and how he views the country today. Let's listen. Good morning, and welcome to a very special edition of Washington Post Live. I'm Michelle Norris, opinion columnist for the Washington Post and founding director of the Race Card Project. And for this very special conversation this morning, I am joined by my dear friend, Elizabeth Alexander, poet, scholar, and president of the Andrew W. Mellon Foundation. Good morning, Elizabeth. Good morning, Michelle. It's wonderful to be together. It is wonderful to be together. And together, we both welcome our guest for this conversation, the 44th president of the United States, Barack Obama. I assume you recognize that guy there in the middle. Good morning, sir. Hey, guys. The uh, Washington Post brought out the big guns for this one. <laughs> we are so excited to see you. We are. Well, and really, I, I am very grateful that you guys took the time. We are so excited to talk to you about your book, but this is a news organization, so we do have to begin with a little bit of news. And overnight, we learned that AstraZeneca has joined two other drug companies in their success with a vaccine trial, 90% success rate. Uh, based on your experience, I'm wondering what you think about the challenges of distributing a vaccine. And if you're all concerned about a, a drift toward a new world hierarchy, where some people have easy access to the vaccine and some people don't. Well, I, I, that's going to be the big challenge. I, I think we're all excited about uh, the results. They're better even than I think a lot of scientists anticipated. And the, now the challenge becomes how do we distribute it rapidly and how do we make sure that people actually uh, are willing to uh, get vaccinated? And that is both a logistical and economic uh, and public messaging challenge. And look, it, it it's, has not been made easier by the fact that we've had a uh, incoherent uh, federal communication strategy, to say the least, when it comes to uh, science and, and, and uh, uh, the whole science around COVID. Um, my understanding, and, I, and I'm not uh, obviously a, a scientific expert here, uh, is that uh, part of the challenge, at least for the first two vaccines that were developed, uh, is that they have to be stored at certain temperatures. That puts a little additional uh, challenge on uh, distributing it widely. Uh, I think one of the first tasks for uh, the Biden administration coming in is going to be make sure that we have clear protocols about who gets it first, uh, you know, whether it's frontline workers, people who are most vulnerable, uh, and then move forward from there. Uh, and then we have to uh, you know, consider the international issues uh, because they're uh, historically what's happened is, is that when you have drugs developed like this, they're expensive and oftentimes very poor countries uh, uh, are the last to get it, if they get it at all. And and international coordination around that process is gonna be a, uh, very important. And then finally, as I said, you know, we're, we're gonna to have to make sure that the public messaging counteracts whatever suspicions, conspiracy theories, uh, you know, the anti-vax uh, internet is pretty powerful uh, and you know, we, we're going to want to make sure we roll that out in a way that uh, elicits trust from the public uh, as much as possible. We're starting to get a sense of what uh, Joe Biden administration will look like. And, and you've seen some names that are very familiar to you, um, including Anthony Blinken now um, expected to be named very soon as the new secretary of state. Um, will he be able to quickly convince European allies that the, the Trump-Pompeo period was, was an aberration and, and try to restore trust and uh, a working relationship with some of the allies that right now have a rather closed-arm view of the United States? Yeah, I, I, I know Tony. Uh, you know, he was uh, my deputy national security advisor. He was Joe's foreign policy advisor when Joe was vice president. He was part of our inner circle uh, in all our, our key meetings. Uh, uh, throughout my presidency, he's outstanding, uh, uh, smart, gracious, uh, a skilled diplomat, well-regarded around the world. Uh, 
and and I know he's going to do a great job. Uh, the reports are that Jake Sullivan uh, will serve as national security advisor. Uh, wicked smart, young, energetic, uh, and uh, I, I think is is going to be outstanding. So 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 you're seeing a team develop that I have great confidence in. I think it's going to be important uh, to recognize that the the confidence that our allies had and the world had in American leadership is not going to be restored overnight. They are going to be greatly relieved and pleased to see uh, uh, people like Tony, uh, you know, at at various conferences around the world and and returning to the traditional leadership role that the U.S. has played. But uh, there is going to be a lingering sense that America's still divided. You know, the, some of the shenanigans that are going on right now around the election, uh, that is making the world question how reliable uh, and steady the U.S. may be. Um, the reversal of U.S. positions on things like the Iran deal and the Paris Accords are going to create uh, some inhibitions in terms of entering into agreements, not always being certain whether or not uh, uh, they will be reversed by future administrations. So th there's been some damage done that is going to take some time to uh, um, to, to uh, dig ourselves out of. But there's no doubt that uh, Joe's got the right people to do it. And, and I have every confidence they'll be able to do it. It just may not happen instantaneously. One last question before we turn to the book about your role in, in public life going forward. We saw you very active in the presidential campaign for your former vice president. Will you participate in the campaign or, or help in any way the Democratic candidates that are running for Senate in Georgia? Well, I, I, look, I think it's a huge, uh, critically important election. Uh, if, in fact, the Democrats were able to win those two seats, uh, then they would have a, a sliver of a majority in the Senate uh, uh, with the vice president as a tiebreaker. Uh, so I will do what I'm asked to do uh, in terms of being helpful. Uh, at the end of the day, that's going to be uh, determined by the people of Georgia. Uh, it, you know, I, I am, um, I'm always flattered when people say, oh, you know, Barack, you know, we need you in here. It's going to make all the difference. Ultimately, I, you know, I think what really makes a difference are people like Stacey Abrams, who've been working for years in the trenches, uh, galvanizing and mobilizing uh, people uh, to, to recognize their own power. Uh, I am a huge believer in grassroots, bottom-up work. And I think that what started with Stacey and her uh, ca uh, gubernatorial campaign and that she perpetuated and that others got involved with uh, that's the reason that Georgia went for Joe Biden, uh, and that's what I think it's going to take for us to be able to sustain this uh, down the road. You know, if, if I'm doing some robocalls or uh, uh, you know some some guest appearances, you know, it, it gets people excited, but uh, ultimately, um, it's the people of Georgia recognizing their own power that makes all the difference. Thank you. Now, we want to get to uh, a discussion about your book, and I'm going to turn it over to Elizabeth, who's going to start our questioning there. Let us okay, talk Elizabeth. about... Hello there. Let us talk about the writing of this wonderful book. And I wanted to put out to you the idea that autobiography is a great American genre. I think mm -hmm. because America believes in the self and the I in the we is what we get with the collective picture of ourselves in autobiography. So I wonder, as you were writing A Promised Land, how you thought about genre, how you thought about writing autobiography, and how the tone developed as you were writing. That's interesting. I mean, part of it is, uh, you know, America believes in self, and and part of it is uh, one of one of the essential elements of being American. I think is this idea of self-creation, right? that uh, we are not bound by whatever station we were born into. Whether that's mythological, whether it is fully reflected in the reality of, of class barriers and obviously race barriers and others, it, it's part of us that we've internalized that, 
you know, I, uh, I, I am going to get out there and make something of myself. And, and certainly my first book, uh, Dreams for My Father, uh, reflected that kind of story uh, of, of, of me as a, as a young person trying to figure out racial identity and uh, how uh, I fit in uh, to uh, this uh, new world, uh, first in Hawaii and then uh, in places like New York and Chicago. Um, there's no doubt that I learned to write also in part from uh, uh, sort of the, the personal narrative. Um, you know, if you ask me uh, what, what's, what's a book that taught me to think about how I would like to write, what I would aspire to write, even though I can't write that good, uh, it'd be probably The Fire Next Time by James Baldwin, mm -hmm. um, a, a autobiographical essay that tells a story and is, is internal, but also paints a complete portrait of New York and Harlem and race and, and uh, you know, preachers and pimps. And, you know, you, you, you know there, there's an entire world from a, a few square blocks that suddenly gives you a picture of all of America uh, and, and a, a sweeping history. Uh, you know, I, I, I read books like that, uh, and uh, that, that was my creative writing class. So, so I, there's no doubt that um, when I thought about writing this uh, presidential memoir, those were my models as opposed to um, a traditional uh, presidential memoir with, you know, and then I met with King such and such, or I met with Prime Minister mm -hmm. such and such. Um, and and you know, how well I succeeded uh, in, in, in tracking that kind of uh, a more literary approach to it, um, you know, it, it, it'll be up to the readers, but that was certainly part of what I was trying to do. Of course, James Baldwin didn't have to stick in um, long uh, explanations of uh, the financial crisis or, uh, <laughs> you know, uh, nuclear negotiations. So, so that was the disadvantage. Every time, once in a while, you'd get in that poetic flow and then you'd realize, oh, you know what, I've, I've got to kind of uh, do a little history, uh, a, a little work here. and and. Uh, Trying to find that balance uh, was was sometimes tough. Thank you. Michelle's going to ask some more now. So when we were writing this book during a, a period of tumult and transformation in America, and when you're writing a book, you're having a conversation with yourself, but there's also all this noise that's happening in the world, and you have to decide to what degree you're going to tune that out or let it in. And this was a period when your policies were under interrogation and in some cases being fully erased by the current administration. Um, how much did all of that influence you when you were writing this book? I, I imagine that it was almost like having a, a 5,000 pound elephant on your shoulder while you're, while you're working on your own work. Yeah, it, it, it's interesting. I don't think it actually affected it that much, um, partly because I, even though uh, I ended up uh, breaking this up into two volumes, I had a pretty clear sense of, of the arc of the story. Um, and I know how the, the story ends, at least, uh, you know, the end of my presidency uh, with Donald Trump coming into office. And I, I, I had already internalized and understood um, that, uh, you know, what his presidency was going to do and what he stood for. Um, so all the stuff that was happening while I was writing wasn't really shocking or surprising to me. I, I would say that if anything, the, 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 uh, what, what probably, uh, influenced the book as I was writing may have been, uh, a growing sense of optimism based on, for example, what happened this summer uh, in the wake of the George Floyd uh, 
murder, uh, and seeing young people mobilize and activate themselves the way they did, it actually uh, strengthened my uh, conviction that, uh, in fact, despite the backwards movement uh, that my successor represented on things like climate change or uh, voting rights or uh, you know economic equity, uh, that there was still this underlying uh, forward motion uh, that was going to be carried on by future generations that had been affected by my presidency and that would um, uh, help lead us uh, uh, going forward. So uh, if, if anything, I, I probably got uh, more convinced about the story I was telling uh, as a consequence of uh, what I saw. Uh, particularly over the the, uh, the last year. Is there anything about yourself that you learned in particular when you when you went back to write the story and revisited your the first four of your eight years in office? Um, you know, I I, uh, I I think I came to uh, realize how much I loved the people I worked with. I knew that, um, but the more I wrote, the more I appreciated how uh, gifted, hardworking, uh, um, just remarkable, the, the, the people who, who were part of my campaign and then part of my White House were. Um, you know, uh, you guys have read the book, so you know that uh, I, I devote an entire chapter to Iowa, for example. And uh, my state director for Iowa is a guy named Paul Tooze, who remains a friend of mine. But as I was writing about it, as I was talking about this guy who comes from a small, uh, you know, Midwestern town, conservative, um, who, you know, is not a flashy guy, kind of, you know, grumpy uh, in his external uh, uh, behavior, but uh, deep down is this, you know, hugely idealistic guy, and he leads this team of kids to, you know, win the state for me and essentially uh, launch us on the path to the White House, um, you know, as I'm writing about him, uh, and he'd probably be embarrassed if he heard me say this because he's still kind of, you know, a grump sometimes or sarcastic, sardonic. Um, you know, I just realized how how much I appreciated him uh, and and how remarkable uh, he was, and he was not a big flashy figure. And I think time and again, as I wrote, um, it it just made me appreciate the degree to which uh any any worthwhile endeavor is um is a collective effort it, it, you know uh it, it, particularly the uh, the president of the united states uh tends to be elevated as this singular individual uh hero or villain depending on you know your take uh, of, of any particular president um but but really uh, he and hopefully at some point she is just the front man, the the, the front person uh, to a much broader uh, uh, endeavor of, of of a bunch of people who are making enormous sacrifices and bringing uh, huge skills to bear uh, in in trying to just move this big uh, you know. A behemoth of a federal government uh, in a direction that can actually help more people uh, the, than it's currently doing. And um, and I, I really, I, I loved writing about others, probably a little more than I loved uh, writing about myself. And there was great excitement for so many reasons, including that you were the first African-American president. But what you may not know is that there were many people who were excited that the first African-American writer 
had become president. <laughs> dreams from my father, it's the truth. Dreams from my father was already being taught in African-American literature classes, taught alongside books like Frederick Douglass's narrative, the autobiography of Malcolm X, books where reading and literacy as self-making and freedom were very important ideas that were completely carried through in dreams from my father. So uh, also we saw you, there was a picture of you a few days after that first election carrying a book of Derek Walcott's collected poems while going to your daughter's schools. So there were people who said the poets all cheered and said <laughs> that there's something about holding complexity simultaneously mm -hmm. that poetry does. Uh, yeah. And we thought, oh, he, he does that too. Um, so yeah. what I would love to know is what has your being a writer, a writer-writer, how has that informed your governance and your leadership? Yeah, it, it, it's, it's an interesting question and I, and I think a timely one. Um, because uh, the essence to me of writing is being able to uh, use your imagination to uh, uh, stand in somebody else's shoes and see through their eyes, uh, to, to, to uh, engage in this radical act of empathy, um, and and shape shifting where you can say, uh, all right, I, I can imagine uh, what it might be like to be, um, uh, you know, a young girl uh, who's enslaved uh, in in the antebellum South, or I, I can imagine myself as a, uh, you know, a. a, a Elizabethan Duke or you know whatever, mm -hmm. right? Both as a reader and as a writer. And you know, my politics, I think, has always been premised on this notion that um, that if, in fact, America is to work, it's going to be because we are un uh, unique among great powers in, being able to stitch together one people uh, out of all these diverse strands of, of people who show up from everywhere with different cultures and foods and music and somehow uh, it works. Um, e pluribus unum, you know, out of many one. Mm -hmm. and, and, and in that sense, that is, to me at least, consistent with a writer's sensibility. Um, you know, uh, Walt Whitman is to me uh, describing not just uh, the American countryside, he's um, describing America's best politics. Um, Abraham Lincoln, when he writes the, the second inaugural, that is a work of literature as he's uh, imagining both sides to this great conflict and what it means and uh, and and ultimately ends with uh, you know with malice towards none and and charity towards all right so uh, so 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 that I think informed everything I did now what's been interesting uh, and and you saw this during my presidency and you see it um, in some of the responses to the to the book, uh, to, uh, uh, to A Promised Land. Uh, in, in our current political environment, we have a lot of impatience with that kind of um, uh, being able to see the other side. Uh, and I think there have been a couple of uh, you know, reviewers uh, and commentators who say, ah, look at Obama, he's like on one side, on the other hand, he's overthinking things you know, and the implication I think is is that if you can see the other side, then somehow you are paralyzed. Um, that the writer's sensibility means that you can't make decisions; that you are stuck because you don't know which way to turn. Um, and 
part of the, the irony is is that in fact for me it was the opposite right uh, and i try to explain this in the book maybe some folks are just impatient with it um it's precisely because i could see both sides or all sides to a problem or an issue that i would then feel as if i was making a good decision um mm -hmm. because i I'd, I'd seen it from different angles um and uh this this idea that overthinking problems was uh or is a um a weakness in politics i think is indicative of a culture in which we want to simplify and uh, uh, eliminate all gray areas and just have our way and beat the other team, uh, as opposed to solving problems and figuring out how, in fact, uh, we we come together. Um, and and I, in in part, I suspect at least on the Democratic side, seeing. Uh, Donald Trump it, eliminate all complexity and just uh, do whatever he wants regardless of the consequences and demonizing the other side prompts I think sometimes this sense of like yeah that we that's what we should be doing too uh, mm -hmm. uh, we, we don't need some fancy overthinking poetic sensibility we just need to be you know this is what we want we're gonna go get it um, I, I think that's a mistake because I think the outcome in terms of policy ends up being really bad. Um, mm -hmm. you, you end up uh, making poor decisions. Um, and 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 I, I look, I, I end the book with bin Laden, uh, the raid uh, in, into Abbottabad, hugely complex, uh, informed by us looking at a whole bunch of different angles to the problem. Um, a bunch of exhaustive discussions and meetings. Mm -hmm. But that didn't stop me from then ultimately saying, all right, that's what we're gonna do and uh, it may not work. Um, so, so I actually think that the writer's sensibility is critical and useful so long as you recognize that uh, once you've seen the complexities of, of any problem, you still have to make a decision and then be willing to uh, bear the burden that your decision is not going to be perfect, that there may be some tragic, um, you know, unintended consequences to a decision, um, and and you have to be comfortable with that as well. So. Well, you mentioned that's so interesting, and you mentioned Whitman. So I keep hearing also, "I am large, I contain multitudes," uh, a line that I know you know well. I contradict Sorry. myself. There's nothing wrong with that. There you go. There you go. Um, I would love to hear, we talked about the fire next time, uh, but uh, you've given us so many wonderful descriptions of rummaging in the, your, your grandparents' garage, going to uh, a, a sidewalk sale, woodshedding when you're in New York City and Columbia, reading, reading, reading. Talk to us, please, about another book that has been transformative to you. Well, I, I mentioned uh, uh, Toni Morrison. Uh, the Song of Solomon was was that was another kind. Uh, that was another book I wanted to write. <laughs> if I, <laughs> it, it's, it's one of those things where if, if you were uh, if, if you asked me what what's the kind of talent that it seems like it's just uh, you know. Uh, uh, you know, magic dust sprinkled on someone, and and suddenly they can write a book like that. Uh, uh, it it was the kind of uh, book that, after reading it, I I said, my goodness, how, how does somebody do that? Um, I I have to confess, and uh, Shakespeare, uh, the Shakespeare's tragedies. Uh, I wasn't somebody who was raised on that. Um, I I took I decided to take a Shakespeare class in college, um, and I just reading those tragedies. It was that same kind of feeling where I thought, how is it that somebody can capture 
so much of what is essential about a human life, uh, and yet still have a story and a plot and interesting things happen um, uh, so that you're carried forward. Uh, you know, I, uh, I, I think when I, when I think about the, 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 the great works of, of um, American writers, whether it's Faulkner or Hemingway uh, or uh, Langston Hughes, um, I also see what I mentioned earlier, that part of myself that is constantly dissatisfied and, and restless and wanting to um, see what's next and um, leaving the past uh, behind, but always being drawn back to it. Um, uh, you know, but so so I I think when when I when I think about my own work, uh, I have been shaped just as my character has been shaped by that quintessential, uh, you know, Jack Kerouac, open road, uh, you know, uh, looking west, seeing what's next, uh, and uh, or in the case of somebody like. Uh, you know, Frederick Douglass uh, looking north to see what's next, but but in either way, wanting to to break the chains of of whatever constraints uh, were, you know we we were we were born into and and uh, bound to. Thank you. I'd like to ask you about the organizing structure or the frame for the book. The book begins with a section called the Bet. And it ends with a section uh -huh. called On the High Wire, which suggests that you're not sure if the, if the bet has yielded dividends. Um, and it's interesting, right. the notion of a bet being uh, a way of looking at your presidency and, and your life, and perhaps a question of whether a nation that was built around a, a cultural default, built around people who look a certain way, could hold... Right in its hand democracy, if that democracy was willing to elect someone who was from outsider minority culture. Um, how was how did you use that as sort of the organizing principle for the book? And was that where for you, this whole story began? You, you know, uh, you guys were, were talking about my uh, uh, literary influences. Um, but you know, one, of, one of my Profound political influences uh, that I write about in the book uh, is Mahatma Gandhi, and um, he, he famously titled uh, one of his works "My Experiments in Truth." Right? And and so so if you if you track Gandhi's career, he, he's basically starting in South Africa, uh, where he is advocating on behalf of coloreds uh, and develops uh, some of his techniques that he then takes to India for their independence movement. Um, you know, he keeps on just trying stuff and seeing if it's going to work um, and developing a, a set of principles around nonviolence and, and uh, you know, uh, uh, nonviolent resistance uh, and I, I, I thought about that, you know, when I started getting into politics, not because I thought I could mimic um, his uh, extraordinary life and success, but because I thought it was a good way of thinking about um, a, a political career. That uh, I, I had gotten a good education, I could, I knew I could support a family. Um, if, if I failed, uh, you know, there was only so far I could, I would fall. I wasn't going to be on the streets. Uh, I could afford to take some risks and the bet that I was making, uh, from the get go, uh, even driving to Chicago to become a community organizer and then running for the state Senate and then running for the U S Senate and ultimately running for the presidency was this belief that you it was possible both to um, 
to to you know have a progressive politics that uh, uh, actually won elections and and garnered a majority of people that you could put together multiracial coalitions uh, that 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 uh, despite our racial divides, it was both um, possible and necessary uh, to bridge those divides in order to advance a progressive agenda. Um, a bet that somebody with as weird a background as mine um, and a funny name could uh, help lead such a coalition. Um, and maybe the biggest bet of all that uh, I could participate in politics at the highest level without losing my soul, <laughs> right? Because the, uh, you know, I, I think the, the cultural stereotype is that uh, not just that uh, power corrupts and absolute power corrupts absolutely, but political power in particular uh, is inherently um, a game of, of uh, shady deals and insider uh, maneuvering. Uh, and, and so all those were some gambles that I took. And, um, and I think that, that that first part of the book describes uh, the nature of that bet. Uh, and it's a bet on America uh, and, and uh, America's place in the world. Um, this volume ends not with that bet having been decided. Uh, it, you know, I end up making a particular bet about whether bin Laden's going to be in uh, Abbottabad, um, because if I get that wrong, I may end up, you know, uh, being a one-term president. Um, but as I point out at the end of the book, there are, despite the success of that particular endeavor, the broader question of whether or not um, uh, the kind of political world and and public life and public um, trust that I'm hoping for is achievable, that is still open to question because you know, I deliberately end the first volume with the contrast between this incredible uh, collective endeavor that was the bin Laden raid with the circus uh, of birtherism that uh, Donald Trump has concocted, and those things are happening exactly at the same time. Uh, and, and it's an indicator that, uh, you know, uh, it's not at all clear which is the more uh, prevalent uh, trend in American politics. Uh, is it that kind of conspiracy-mongering, racially uh, charged, uh, uh, spectacle, uh, or is it this um, deliberate, thoughtful, uh, you know, um, professional, uh, analytically robust process of solving problems and getting stuff done? And and, so and at the end of the book, we don't know yet. So just a, a quick question about that circus or that spectacle. When you first heard the early rumblings of that, the the you know the carnival barker that you describe um, is Sarah Palin, who talks about the um, you say through Palin it seemed as if uh, the dark spirits that had long been lurking on the edges of the modern Republican Party, xenophobia, anti-intellectualism, paranoid conspiracy theories, and antipathy toward black and brown folks were finding their way to the center stage. When you first heard that, are you you know you you have a chance to revisit that moment in this book, and I'm wondering if you if you feel like you should have pushed harder against those forces, if you should have heard something more loudly when that surfaced, and and if you did push harder against that, what would that have what would that have looked like? What did that conversation with you know that earlier version of yourself sound like when you were writing that portion of the book? Yeah, I don't know what that would mean to push harder against it because she was uh, the nominee. Uh, on the other side of 
uh, a contested presidential race, and uh, I pushed pretty hard against it by beating her <laughs> and, and John McCain. Right? I mean, we we won uh, uh, by by sizable margins, contesting that worldview. Um, and, but and, in and, general, and, the opposition that we faced repeatedly, you know, with with a party that refused to work with you. Um, in, in revisiting this, did you think about how you might have tempered optimism and the hope that they might that you might appeal to their better angels with a different use of the levers of power? Yeah, I, I, look, um, a, a couple observations. First of all, I, I, I you know I probably uh, should note, um, and I, I try to do so uh, in the book, but but maybe in interviews because people remember Sarah Palin, but. They're less likely to remember, for example, Pat Buchanan, who was, you know, peddling that same kind of politics, uh, you know, back in uh, 1992, uh, and before that, you know, there, there, there's a, there's a long history of this. Um, the difference, I think, with Palin was that she became the nominee, um, whereas with Pat Buchanan, despite him doing well in the Republican primary, uh, George H. W. Bush really tried to sideline him uh, as much as he could. Uh, and and so this was the first act of of that kind of approach becoming central to Republican identity uh, and really consuming and overwhelming the the more uh, what up to that point had been viewed as the more establishment responsible brand of uh, Republican conservatism. Um, Post post election, by the time I'm president, there's no doubt that as I'm writing about this, I'm wondering, are there are there steps I could have taken to counteract or challenge more directly um, these kinds of attitudes that were lurking in the Republican Party? Um, and and look, I, I uh, I'm always wrestling with this. There is a school of thought that I, I think, uh, uh, describe in uh, in the book. Um, there, there were critics within the Democratic Party who felt as if I tried for too hard for too long to reach out and to be bipartisan, uh, to uh, to to accommodate Republicans to. Um, assume the best, as opposed to just calling them out and, and uh, being more uh, pugilistic uh, and aggressive in, uh, in, in going after them. Um, and, and I understand that impulse. What, what, those, what those critics never kind of described for me was what exactly that was going to do in terms of me actually getting stuff done mm -hmm. uh, as opposed to just feeling good and mm -hmm. and i you know perhaps their argument is that i would have rallied my side and we would have uh seen higher turnout in midterm elections and so forth uh because people uh you know uh ultimately are motivated by that sense of there's a fight uh, as opposed to um, you know, we're trying to cut deals, uh, but part of part of my goal in writing this book was to clarify for people the degree to which uh, the country really is divided. It's there. There are this is a big, complicated country, and in order to get anything done certainly legislatively, you have to figure out how to pick off and accommodate folks who are significantly more uh, conservative than, uh, you know, my base in Chicago or Manhattan or San Francisco. And me uh, denouncing or decrying uh, uh, attitudes that uh, you know were were uh, were not sufficiently woke 
was not going to get me more votes to mm -hmm. pass healthcare or to you know uh, deal with climate change or what have you. Uh, and certainly, at least in my first two years, when I still had a majority but was hampered by a, uh, a filibuster rule in the Senate, which is one of the villains of my book, this non-constitutional rule uh, that that arose out of a bad decision by Aaron Burr uh, that ends up uh, creating a supermajority requirement uh, in the Senate. Um, given that that was a reality at the time, the only way I could get stuff done, I, I needed Ben Nelson's vote. Ben Nelson was a conservative Democrat from Nebraska. He had to be conservative to get elected. I had to get the the vote of Robert Byrd in my first two years. Uh, 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 you know, uh, venerated in the Senate, but also a former Klan leader, uh, and you know whose whose the state's economy was based on coal, um, and you know, and Joe Lieber, who was part of our caucus and had endorsed John McCain in the race against me. <laughs> but he was part of our caucus, uh, and and so, um, I, 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 I part of what what I I uh, want people to come out reading this book, uh, understanding is that the there is a prophetic voice because we were talking about uh, you know um, James Baldwin earlier. Um, there, there is a prophetic voice that a writer can, uh, or or a, a, a civil rights leader, or an activist, uh, or a movement leader, can um, uh, can use to motivate and mobilize and change society. Mm -hmm. And that prophetic voice, oftentimes, is the thing that will open up possibilities for politics because it's changing people's hearts and changing people's minds. But the language of politics itself is very rarely um, moved or shaped uh, or uh, by that kind of prophecy. Um, you know, because ultimately you need votes and that that is a much more um, you know, in Mario Cuomo's terms, it's 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 uh, it's prose and and not poetry. And and so part of my challenge as as president was campaigning in some high poetry, uh, using a writer's sensibility to describe who we are, what we might be. But once you get to governing, and then I'm dealing with Mitch McConnell and John Boehner and Ben Nelson and Robert Byrd and uh, sometimes progressives in particular overestimate the degree to which high rhetoric is going to actually move votes um, because and the country's uh, and and what i wanted to add to that and where i wanted to go from there is young people you said you were writing this book explicitly to younger people so right. what is your diagnostic for the unfinished business that they have to take up as they move alongside us and as they as they come to lead us well, I am so excited to see this generation coming up. Um, if if us old folks will just get out of the way, <laughs> and and uh, uh, and that's true culturally. It's true in terms of our politics. Um, uh, I think their instincts are really good. Uh, I, they in uh, it is second nature for them to believe uh, that. Uh, all people uh, have have intrinsic worth and dignity. Uh, it is second nature for them uh, to not discriminate pe uh, against people because uh, their differences in race or uh, uh, gender identity or uh, you know their, who who they uh, pray to, um, and and. They're sophisticated. They're smart. They they're taking in, you know, uh, 
culture from not just all across the country, but all around the world. Um, and I and they're highly idealistic. The, the, the question for them is going to be, how do we build institutions that uh, work in these this modern era uh, and that reflect those good impulses? And um, I think that the, the big work of this next generation is uh, to channel their natural idealism as well as skepticism about existing institutions into uh, a rebuild of those institutions to work uh, for them and that can meet the current challenges. So, um, you know, you, you, let's just take the criminal justice system. I, I think young people understand the need to remake that uh, in a in a pretty uh, significant way, um, and the, their challenge then is going to be okay. How do we get granular about um, uh, reimagining what policing would look like, uh, so that, for example, you know, uh, we're not uh, sending uh, police officers with with live ammunition to deal with a homeless person who might need a uh, mental health services and an intervention, and there's a way to de-escalate. But but how do you practically do that? Uh, and you know uh, you know how do we create uh, you know on the climate change front? You know how how do we uh, actually create an economy that can still provide jobs for young people and uh, keep the engine of the economy going, but, uh, you know, uh, actually uh, is going to preserve the planet uh, uh, for our kids and our grandkids. And, and, and how do we make a politics that is responsive? Uh, because I think they recognize that um, whether it's around you know, minimum wage laws or gun laws or immigration reform, that there are a whole bunch of things that the majority of Americans believe in, and yet you can't get Congress to do anything about it. Why is that? There are all kinds of uh, uh, institutional uh, reboots that have to be done. Uh, and, 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 and that's going to so, require not, it's, it's going to require not just imagining, uh, better outcomes, but it's actually going to be, uh, some, some re-engineering, some tinkering, uh, to, to, to make these institutions work better. Uh, and, and that's hard to do. Uh, uh, the best example of that is the fact that we're not going to be able to get good voting reform so that everybody's vote is counted so that it's easier for everybody to vote so that everybody's uh, you know votes actually then count in terms of being able to influence Congress we're not gonna be able to get that done until you get over the hump of having a majority in Congress to pass a new voting rights law and in each of these cases you've got these barriers that you have to, you have to get over the hump uh, in order then to uh, create the institutional change that's necessary uh, to 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 keep things going in a better direction. So we only have a little bit of time left. Um, and I know Elizabeth has a question about it, an observation that she had in the book. I think we both, you know, as early readers had a chance to really dive into this. And there are things that we both really um, uh, particularly appreciated, your use of character, your use of language, um, the way that you explain really difficult topics and make them uh, accessible. One of the things I appreciate is your willingness to talk about flaws. And, um, and missteps that you've made. And since you want young people to read this, I know we don't have a, a lot of time, but if you could just quickly uh, address whether that was done to leave breadcrumbs for the next generation, to know that you know most people don't come out into leadership fully formed. And as it's harder and harder to work in public life, um, if there's a reason you did that, it's unusual because you're, you're one of the more confident people I know in sports or in board games or in almost anything you do. But in this case, you, you sort of let back, let people understand some of the missteps that you've made. Yeah, well, look, you know, uh, we all have kids who are roughly the same age, and 
they are remarkable. They are far superior than I was at their age. Um, but they're also bombarded with this message, partly uh, because of their phones, and they're seeing people's living their best lives on Instagram, and they're hearing about how you know Mark Zuckerberg was a billionaire by 27, and you know they are comparing themselves, their baselines against which they uh, assess themselves are so out of whack to what most of us are, are uh, actually experiencing in our 20s and 30s that uh, I worry about them sometimes. And, and, and I want young people to see that um, somebody who ended up having a fairly successful political career um, you know, didn't know what the heck he was doing at 23, 24, 25, uh, that even well into his 30s um, was still experiencing doubts and confusion and making mistakes. Uh, that uh, even when I was running and and was you know on the cover of Time magazine and attracting these huge crowds, I'd make you know gaffes and uh, I'd botch a debate and and that's okay. Um, you know, I, I probably can't transmit this through a book. Um, I think it has to be lived, but I, I try to describe to Malia and Sasha, one of the great gifts of getting to be my age now is I'm just not afraid of much because I've kind of, I've been knocked down a bunch of times. I've, I've embarrassed myself. I've, you know, publicly failed. Uh, and people have written entire articles about my failings. And I've been criticized and ostracized and demonized. And, you know, but I'm still here. Uh, you know, uh, I'm okay. Uh, and and that's a hard thing to to internalize in your 20s or your 30s. But to the extent that the book can help uh, a young person say, okay, you know what? It, it's worth me taking a chance. It's worth me trying hard things. It's okay when I screw this up because, you know, that's part of the process. Um, yeah, that, that, then I think it's worth it uh, for, for, for me to be able to share that to them. Elizabeth has you know, one last final quick question. Yes, uh, the most beautiful moment in the book to me is when you're in Oslo, you've won the Nobel Peace Prize, you look out the window at a sea of people holding candles aloft. And you say, and if I may, I'll read your words, whatever you do won't be enough, I heard their voices say. Try anyway. What do those words mean to you now? I, uh, I, I think that's what we tell ourselves hopefully every morning when we get up right it's uh uh that's not unique to politics uh life will throw stuff at you uh there will be disappointments uh there will be pain and there will be loss and we know at the end of the day <laughs> we die that's the one certainty that we have, uh, that this is temporary. And yet there's this massive possibility of joy along the way, uh, as long as we try, as long as we're open to it, uh, as long as we experience it, as, and, and more than anything, as long as we reach out and are sharing this time on earth with, uh, with others that we love and we care about. And, uh, and that hopefully we're continually expanding that uh, the circumference of that love and concern to reach more and more people, because um, that fills us up. Uh, you know that, that that's not just a that's not just a political point of view. That's a that's a writerly point of view, and and ultimately a spiritual point of view. Right? Uh, that that that's how uh, that's that's how we. Uh, 
that's how we get through the, the tough times and, and uh, enjoy the good ones. And unfortunately, we're out of time here. We could go on, but the clock tells us that we'll have to say goodbye. Elizabeth, it has been so fun to conduct this conversation with you. Thank you so much. What a joy. Thank you, Michelle. And President Obama, thank you so much for joining us and for helping us understand your writing process and for writing this book. Thank you for joining us. I appreciate you guys. Two great writers in their own rights. Thank, thank you, you so much. It was indeed a great discussion. Uh, when you write that second half of uh, this book, the second version, uh, the, sec the book that will look at you, the second half of your administration, please come back and join us again. If you'd like mm -hmm. to watch highlights from this interview, please go to WashingtonPostLive.com and you'll also find a podcast version of the conversation there. Please be sure to join us right here, back here at one o'clock where my colleague Robert Costa will be interviewing Dr. Anthony Fauci. You won't want to miss that. I'm Michelle Norris for Washington Post Live. Thanks for joining us. Thanks for listening. To hear more interviews from this series and other Washington Post Live programs, visit us at WashingtonPostLive.com.